0: Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us. So today we decided to collect a group of snippets of previous podcasts that we really enjoyed recording and kind of stand out in our, in our minds. They're pretty memorable. And today we actually have Erin West, who's the producer for Tales from the Kentucky Room and editor. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah. We're glad to have
0: you in front of the microphone today, not behind the microphone.
1: Yeah, it's, it's odd. Normally I have to just sit here and be
0: quiet. <laughs> And make sure everything is working. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so today we're just going to talk about the most memorable parts of our of our podcast. Yes. Um, we're up to I think forty two episodes now. Forty three. Yeah. We just the baseball episode was episode forty three. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh yes, yeah. we released one a few weeks ago amazing I can't believe it's it's been 43 episodes but yeah we've had a lot of fun a lot of fun doing it yep it feels like we
1: just started doing it yesterday but it also feels like we've always been doing it so I guess that means you're in <laughs> a <know>. good spot
0: <laughs> that's, that's that's right that's right yeah we we started our podcast from um, over a year ago and we wanted to thank our listeners for for tuning in and downloading and all that The first podcast that we, I think, really, really prepared for, well, I mean, you have to prepare for all of them. We had Wayne do it, which was the murder of Betty Gail Brown. Yes. It was around the time there was a new book about her murder being released. There was a lot of reading material for it. We actually had to divide it up into two parts because it was so long, right?
1: Yeah, we did. So that was when I, at first, was afraid to have more than 20 minutes for an episode and so I broke it. It was 45 minutes. So I broke it into two.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it was, I mean, we really wanted to discuss like the background of Betty Gale, not just the murder part. So her her short life. So that's why it was pretty long. We wanted to make sure that Betty Gale as the person was highlighted, not just the tragic end of her life. Because everyone's familiar with her murder.
1: Yeah. I went to Transy. And so you hear her ghost story all the time, but you don't really hear about her as a person. And I, I agreed that that was really important for us to cover so that she would be remembered for herself
0: more than. I think Wayne did a really good job. Yeah, absolutely. In
2: 1945, when the Lexington Leader newspaper sponsored what what was called my big moment essay contest for children in early 1951, eight-year-old Betty Gale referred to the separation from her father with her essay Mm -hmm. entry. Right. And let me just read you what appeared in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. This is February 23rd, 1951. And the headline was Betty Gail Brown's big moment was seeing her daddy home from war for the first time. The article goes on and says, a letter addressed to my big moment. Editor arrived today from Betty Gail Brown, H eight, 133, Iroquois Court. She wrote, my big moment was when my daddy came home from the war and I saw him for the first time. I was only three years and two months old when he came. I went right into his arms and was not afraid of him either. He had been gone overseas three and a half years, and I was sure it was he because I had seen so many pictures of him. Mm-hmm. I already loved him because he had sent me dolls from Iceland, Ireland, England, and France.
0: Wayne did a good job in, in telling her, her story. And of course, the, the murder part is fascinating and Especially since it's considered, I guess, unsolved if you don't subscribe to the execution of the murderer. But yeah, it's it's a fascinating story. But that was a, a good, good podcast, I think. That was kind of our first true crime episode, and I
1: really liked it. And it had one of the best receptions. And so that's when we started doing a little more <laughs> with our murder and mayhem.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. And it did spur on Wayne's series for true crime, I think, for programming at the library. So it did. Yeah. What about you? What was your of your favorites? Erin, go ahead. Oh, my gosh. I have so many.
1: And I when I edit them, I almost memorize them because I have to listen over and over. But I think my, one of my personal favorites was the episode that we did with Rand Dotson about the Swope versus Goodlow throwdown in the post office. Because oh, yes, yes. I've yeah. always been sort of fascinated with that story. But in my head now, knowing more details about what went on, that they kind of, they hated each other forever. And that there was the Cassius Marcellus Clay connection with William Cassius Goodlow and basically one was blocking the other one's mailbox and were like, get out of my way. And the other one said no and then they killed each <laughs> other. And it was just so yeah. fast. just bizarre. Yeah. It's just yeah. like how did these two just get to the point where they hated each other so much that
0: they killed each other over mail? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, talking to Mr. Dotson, it was, you know, clear that apparently they they did have some sort of political rivalry prior to that.
1: Yeah. And so then I started thinking, well, were they like Kentucky's Hamilton and Burr? You know, because one of them was achieving things and the other one wasn't. And so the one that wasn't decided that that was that they were the reason that they weren't getting
0: what they felt they deserved. And so... And then you end up with a duel and the parallels to the stories is very very fascinating I think yeah that was a good podcast I love the name that you chose for it something about going postal
1: yeah or the I think it was Goodlow versus Swope the, or the first time going postal might apply <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs>
3: Yeah. So it just so happened that their their post office boxes were beside each other mm-hmm. in the post office. Swope went in to get his mail mm-hmm. and Goodlow also entered the post office to get his mail shortly afterwards and Swope was blocking his way to his box okay. and he asked Swope to move out of the way. He said, you, you're blocking my way. I need to get to my mail. Mm-hmm. And Swope said he didn't care if he was blocking his way. And that's all it took. Yeah. And then, to me, it sounds like Goodlow pulled the knife first, mm-hmm. like he was the aggressor. Yeah. Because the backstory is there are several potential instances where the same thing could have happened. Yeah. Even a year prior to this, they had a huge falling out in the lobby of the Phoenix Hotel. And, and this ev- was documented. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. And everybody thought that they would they would stage some kind of duel then, but mm-hmm. their friends interceded and were able to calm things down. Okay. And they agreed to never they both apologized and they both agreed to never speak to each other again.
0: Oh god. Well I guess Lexington was a pretty violent town back then. Yeah. I think
1: probably everywhere was to some extent, but it seems like And and maybe we just have a better recorded history of it because we were a bigger place, but it definitely
0: seems like we had a lot of violence. (laughs) Seems, it seems like a lot of violence and duels and rivalries and all that, so... Actually, the Kentucky Jewels episode we did with Gwen is one of definitely stand out. We had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs, which is kind of weird. I know. Thinking to myself, oh my God, that episode, we laughed our heads off and it was about people killing each other.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> like. Well. I mean, the the story of Andrew Jackson and Charles Dickens' duel. Andrew Jackson getting shot and just, he didn't want to give him the satisfaction of knowing that he got shot. Hides that he tells people not. Well,
1: and the fact that he wore this giant coat so that people couldn't even tell, even, you know, the doctor couldn't tell if he'd gotten hit
0: or where he'd gotten hit, so. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that was pretty interesting.
2: into a duel. Apparently Dickinson had been making some comments about Jackson's wife, Mm -hmm. and Jackson didn't like that. So they met in a uh, Kentucky County, Logan County in 1806. Dickinson got the first shot off, hit Jackson Mm -hmm. in the stomach or or chest area, but, but it wasn't a lethal wound. And he didn't even realize he'd hit Jackson. Jackson had a game plan in place where he had told his second, I'm going to let him shoot first, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to take dead aim. And sure enough, he did.
0: So how did Dickinson not know that Jackson was shot? How did he not see it?
2: Well, Jackson was a very calculating person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess that's why he became President (laughs) of the United States. And he he made a point to where a real big loose coat and waistcoat. Mm. And one person even described it as looking like a dressing gown, which I don't think Jackson would have appreciated that <laughs> comment. But, you know, the way he was dressed mm-hmm. did a good job of
0: covering up, of the covering up and-
2: his body frame.
0: Oh, I see. Another uh, podcast that I really liked is actually the one that Nathan Coleman did for us. Yeah. Um, He recorded his Lexington ghost stories. Yes.
1: That Um, one was a fun
0: one. He's got a really good narrator voice. He does.
1: Yeah. And he, I've been on his in-person walking tours about three times now, and they are very good as well. So I was really excited to have him come and do a few selections of Kentucky ghost stories that we could share in that episode
0: as well. Dr. Coleman was kind enough to do that and to agree. He's always a good sport with us. Yes. We have him on the on the podcast for several episodes and it's definitely- always a good time talking to him. Kind of forget that you're recording and just listening to him. It's his, it's his field. It's, I mean, he's a doctor of history, yeah. but he's really good at his job. Very good.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I love the one in that episode when he's talking about the, the man bet ghost story with the John Hunt Morgan home and just Uh how he wanted to look more into just why that particular ghost story got told historically.
4: Bouvette James is said to make her presence known whenever there's trouble at Hopemont at the Hunt Morgan house. And that folks walking by Gratz Park late in the evening, catching a glimpse up to the third floor window that faces on Mill Street, uh, they'll see someone looking back. Bouvette James making sure that everything is fine and safe at the Hunt Morgan house. Now, this story, as a historian to me, is really fascinating. You know, where do these ghost stories come from? Ghost stories, of course, they reflect lots of things. They reflect a lot of our fears, our worries, our concerns about life, about death, about the afterlife. But even more than that, they reflect where we are as a society, The first time I can find this story ever written down comes in the 1920s. So this ghost story is at least a hundred years old. But the fact that it's coming from the 1920s probably tells us a lot about this ghost story. Uh, Things were happening in the South in the 1920s. The generation that had known slavery uh, in the United States for the most part had died off. Uh, The Civil War was being rewritten in lots of ways and the history of slavery. Bouvette James was an enslaved woman. And so when you hear these stories about Bouvette James, a lot of times it comes off almost word-for-word stereotypical of mid-century and earlier ideas about the good black slave, right? The faithful slave, Uh, especially ideas of Mammy. Uh, If you think about Mammy and Gone with the Wind, right? Always protective, always there, always knowing what's going on. In fact, uh, Mammy from Gone with the Wind is supposedly based off of Bouvette James, right? Mammy in Gone with the Wind wears her red petticoats. Uh, Bouvet James famously wore her red shoes. And this is reflective of what Southerners are trying to do in the 1920s, right? Trying to argue slavery wasn't that bad, they were all members of the family, um, which we know, of course, historically is not true, (laughs) right? That's not the way enslaved folks were treated at all in the South, uh, including Bouvet James. And so this ghost story, I think, uh, was created to reflect that myth Southerners were building uh, in the early 20th century.
0: Um, and he does a good job of kind of differentiating between what is myth and what is actual history Yeah, and, uh, he doesn't lose the sort of the aura of it when he tells the ghost stories
1: yeah when he tells it you feel yeah, like it the might the he tells be it. true you know
0: <laughs> yeah you're like maybe maybe it is maybe. people that have a hard time believing yeah <laughs> do you want to add anything else out the, the podcast. There's so, Oh my gosh, there's so many.
1: Well, I think we have to talk about the Cassius Marcellus Clay episode. Of course, yeah. On the whole. Oh my goodness. And I actually, when I edit this, I'm going to insert a little bit that is an outtake from the episode <laughs> when Wayne was starting to describe how he was going to use uh, Mr. Potato Head as the <laughs> example of how this poor man was horribly disfigured and how Yeah. so I try to stay really quiet sometimes it's really hard to do and in this particular bit I wasn't successful
0: (laughs) Uh, this is this is I believe when he was talking about how uh, Clay dismembered Samuel Brown yeah I think it was Samuel Brown
1: I felt horrible because I was laughing so hard. I was doing this weird silent wheeze that still got picked <laughs> up by both microphones.
0: It was hard. It was hard to not laugh. It was
1: so hard. But that one that was the one that we actually had to stop laugh and start recording
0: <laughs> again. And uh, get all our all our giggles out. But it was an interesting story. I mean, this guy was sent all the way from New Orleans to assassinate Clay for his just for
2: simply for his views. <laughs> on, on television, okay. I think, 1952. Okay, that's good to well, know. Anyway, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Potato Head. We can, we can edit this part. <laughs> I
0: don't
1: have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, i And, you know, and it really, having done the Cassius Marcellus Clay episode and then going back and listening to the Swope versus Goodlow because William Cassius Goodlow is like his nephew or something like that. And the legend is that the knife that Goodlow used to stab Swope 13 times was given to him by Cassius Marcellus Clay and said, you know, if you run into him again, you take care of him. I, I'm
0: not surprised that he would do that. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually... Yeah, In fact. yeah, I mean, the man was having shootouts with the Madison like
1: County Sheriff at ninety. So, <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. I completely, I completely see that as a thing that happened, even though it, it's possible. It's just local legend. I, I totally believe it. I recently did the transcription for it, so I listened to it over again, and it just every time I just I laugh at some other part, and then immediately feel guilty because it's just he's just this really super violent person but just Wayne's storytelling ability just makes everything sound so funny and so engaging that you really don't realize until later that maybe you shouldn't laugh
0: at that but you do I mean the other thing like with with people like Cassius Marcellus Clay, you know, you go to to school and, and, you know, you learn a little bit about Kentucky history and you learn about everything that these people do. Like, you know, he was anti-slavery. He, you know, had a newspaper and he was a statesman and then, you know, served as an ambassador and and all this stuff. You don't really delve into the flaws of this person, you know, that he was a temper or that you know, maybe his anti-slavery views weren't necessarily the fact that, you know, people we shouldn't treat people like that because of the color of their skin. It's more about you know, taking away, hurting the white farmer workers and, and all that. But it's, you know, the nuance of people's lives, I think, working in the Kentucky room and, and doing these podcasts kind of help bring those to, to light. And we do,
1: this is a little, I have to pull Wayne and do a little plug for our digital archive, but we actually do have nearly a full run of The True American up on our digital archive on the website. So if you want to see the paper that Cassius wrote and edited, it's there. So it's very interesting. It's very just as fiery as you would expect. We have the issue that has the article that led the giant mob of people to storm his office while he had typhoid fever. and it is just as you would expect, it very much is inflammatory and but it also kind of makes you go, yes <laughs> when you read
0: it. This guy did not hold back. He did not hold back. No, he didn't. So if you want to read that, it's on the digital archive. Which is kind of fascinating that he was even an ambassador, because that takes a little bit of diplomacy.
1: It does, but he was he also the ambassador like to Russia, so person. he probably mm. fit in yeah, that's true. pretty well with Perfectly
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Straightforwardness. Yeah, uh, yeah.
2: Well, companies a state militia. <laughs> Let me just read you his report that the sheriff wrote to the judge explaining what happened. Judge John C. Shanoff, dear judge, I am reporting about the posse like you said I had to. Judge, we went out to Whitehall, but we didn't do no good. It was a mistake to go out there with only seven men. Judge, the general was awful mad, meaning General Clay. He got to cussing and, and a shooting, and we had to shoot. I thought we hit him two or three times, but don't guess, we did. He didn't act like it. We come out right good, considering I'm having some misery from two splinters of wood in my side. Dick Collier was hurt a little when his shirt tail and britches was shot off by a piece of horseshoe, and nails come out of that old cannon. He was shooting the cannon at a monster. <laughs> uh, have you seen Jack? He was an unidentified member of the posse. He wrenched his neck and shoulder when his horse throwed him as we, as we were getting him away. Now, Judge, I think you'll have to go to Frankfurt and see Brown, John Young Brown, who was actually governor at the time. If he could send Captain Longmire up here with two light fielders, meaning divisions,
4: divisions, yeah.
2: if he could divide his men, send some with the cannon around to the front of the house, not too close so, and the others around through the cornfield and up around the cabins... And Springhouse, to the back porch, I think this might do it. Respectfully, <laughs> Josiah Simmons, I share.
0: And speaking of the true American, I think one of my favorite episodes is, of course, talking to Tom Evelyn, former yeah. columnist for the leader on the history of Lexington newspapers. That was always that that was a treat to talk to him. And when you admire his writing and you admire him as a journalist and think to talk to him in the Lexington newspapers was, was all was fascinating. It was.
1: And, yeah, yeah was I it. was really excited to get to meet him and do it. And that was the episode that I had laryngitis. So I couldn't actually talk to him. <laughs> 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 I had to do like hand signals. And I and forgot that you did. Look yeah. excited.
0: Yeah. <laughs> But the, the show must go on. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Tom Evelyn is, is always a treat. It's a good thing that um, your voice wasn't... You need that for, for editing and, and No, you producing. don't. And actually,
1: you know, the fact that I couldn't make any noise was pretty helpful on the producer side because I <laughs> couldn't, you know, make a weird, like, cough yeah. or whatever.
5: Heather was sick and he wasn't any help and our type got all scrambled coming down and... And so uh, it's probably no surprise that his younger brother left him at that point. uh, When
0: things weren't working out. Things weren't working
5: out. But, uh, But anyway, the Kentucky Gazette was really the second newspaper west of the Alleghenies, the first west of Pittsburgh. And it was kind of modeled on the Pittsburgh Gazette, which was the first newspaper there. And this got started. And a lot of the early copy was really things about what was going outside of Lexington. There wasn't really a lot of local news at the time. That was collected and there's a lot of theories about that one of them may have been that lexington was so smaller but i knew what was going on anyway yeah, and they really wanted to know gossip what, and yeah. exactly they wanted to know what was going on elsewhere but there was a lot of uh, business for advertising because you know what you've got to remember is that you know from the late 1790s to the after the war of 1812 lexington was really the most important city in western america yeah. so there was a lot of business here a lot of stuff being imported you could pay your subscription to the Kentucky Gazette if you didn't have hard cash. There wasn't a lot of that around. You could also pay it in corn and wheat or whiskey. Oh, wow. <laughs> or ash flooring of all things.
0: Another guest we always enjoy talking to is Peter Brackney. it's yeah. a joy to have a Peter Brackney on. His book for Lost Lexington and his latest for The Murder of Geneva Hardman. Because you really like get that this man does his research. Yeah. He really delves into subject quite thoroughly getting the background and the making sure to include family and, and stuff for for his latest book about geneva hardman's murder and and you know sticking to the facts but also bringing in the human factor and and, and the context of that era um you know he he really does a, a good job
1: in yeah, doing that. i agree and he's just also just A joy to talk to, just as a person, you know, before and after the episode. It's just so fascinating. He's just so much fun to
0: have in the booth. Exactly, it's always like you know when you ask people onto the podcast, you kind of get nervous, like, oh, am I imposing on their time? You know, he's a really busy guy. He's got his practice, law practice, and he's he's got family, and he's you know doing more research, and he's you know this is his hobby, his historical research. He's always so gracious to agree to come in and and that's in his tight schedule and it's really it's really nice of, of, of guests that come on not just Peter but everybody that agrees to come on oh so, yeah we've been pretty lucky
1: yeah I'm always thrilled whenever people are like yeah I'd love to and oh I've been listening and I love it and so it's always really gratifying to hear that from people and that people are actually really they'd like to come on and it,
0: it's really nice and we really appreciate that
6: I... One of
7: the letters, I think, is really a neat letter and a peculiar letter. Virginia Plummer from Providence, Rhode Island. She she had lost a number of children of her own. And she was probably in her 80s or 90s when she sent the letter to Geneva's mother. And the letter was addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Hardman. Of course, not knowing that Mr. Hardman was eight years deceased. And then you... We looked at the letter and it was typewritten, mm-hmm. except there were some blanks that were handwritten and it was a form letter. <laughs> and I was able to confirm that this was a form letter because it's in another book by another author whose family member had been killed in 1917 or 1919, I can't remember the How year. Down in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And Remembering Ella is the name of that book. And so the author and I corresponded some and we were exchanging notes. And it was a verbatim letter. So she was sending out this this letter, reading about children who had been killed mm-hmm. that were showing up in the newspapers mm-hmm. and sending out letters. It was her way, I guess, of grieving or I'm not sure, but it was
0: Yeah, it could be an, a, a way of, of coping and, yeah, to reach out to other people that have experienced what she has experienced. But, yeah, I found that letter very
7: and, interesting. And, and, and the, the Hardman family received a lot of correspondence, yeah. Yeah. but this was the only form letter. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One of my favorite people that we had on was um Kevin Lane Derringer when we got to talk to him about his memoir oh, yes. before it came out. And not only was he just wonderful to talk to, it, the interview went so smoothly, but the editing was so nice. I loved editing him because his voice was just really
0: smooth, you know, being a trained actor. <laughs> it was really nice to... Yeah. Yeah. You can tell uh, that's his craft. I mean, the, the, you know, he's an actor, so his voice is inflection and the way he tells a story is is pretty good. I mean, he's a professional, so, but yeah, I enjoy talking to him too. I mean, he shared his memoir. That's like his personal story and he's so gracious about coming on and, and, you know, it's it's a great opportunity to get to meet all these great people that are doing really awesome things in our community highlighting that. I think JP, one of the Kentucky Room staff, always says, you know, we come and research Kentucky history that, you know, from, you know, decades and hundreds of years ago. We have to do a good job of recording our current for future generations and I think that's what we are trying to do with this podcast is absolutely, you know, a different way of recording history. But that's why I really enjoy doing this.
8: Pretty unhappy. I don't remember I must have badly a few times. (laughs) I still have my little name tag. It's a little chirping bird with my name on it that the nun made.
0: Wow, you keep everything, don't you? (laughs) I
8: do. And and every grudge. Anyway, so I was there and I was trying really hard to be a good boy. I mean, because that had already been built in. Yeah. My sister who was in the fourth grade had a pop bead necklace. It was plastic beads that one popped into the other and you could pop them apart and put them oh, back yes, together. yes, I remember those, yeah. And back, yeah. <laughs> back and forth. And I'd been pulling them apart and putting them back together and pulling them apart and putting them back together, anything to, you know, keep busy hands. So there I am in school, it's Sister Rita Marie walks by me. Now, this poor nun probably had, what, 25 or 30 kids in her classroom of four and five-year-olds? Mm. And she walked by, and, and she had the, the, those. That order of nuns wore a very large rosary on their belt, mm-hmm. and it would hang and swish by you as as the nun went up and down. I reached over, and I not a malicious thought in my brain, I just thought, ooh, puppies <laughs> and I grabbed her large rosary and started popping it apart. Well, of course she was appalled, and she locked me in the cloakroom, which I rather liked. It was quiet and had a slightly musty smell of dirty children, but it was it, it was nice. But then she called the Monsignor, a rather frightening human being, who came in. I was so afraid of him that I hid under my desk. Now, that's not under the seat, but there was a book compartment under the seat, and I was hiding under that. It was about maybe seven inches at most. And somehow, I got my scrawny little body shoved (laughs) in there. And he was threatening to exorcise the demons from me. And being a good little Catholic boy with a mother who had converted from Southern Baptist, I had a very strong image of what Satan looked like. And it sure looked like the Monsignor to me. So he's talking.
1: But I just wanted to mention one more person that I was really starstruck to meet was the artist Robert Morgan. Yeah, He came on about a year ago to talk about Henry Faulkner and Sweet Evening Breeze. So we got to record him twice. And it was just—I think it was the most raucous time that we'd ever had doing podcasts. <laughs> he was just so funny and so engaging, and he was, you know, really open with
0: us and told us all these stories. So he's another one who was very similar to talking to him, like with yeah, like you—you you can tell that he really enjoys what he does as an artist and you know talking about his his with Henry Faulkner and Breeze and all that it was that was really gracious of him to come on and, and talk about that.
1: It was really something that was cool it was hard it was hard <laughs> the, you know the first
0: you know the first
1: time that we interviewed him it was hard not to just be kind of like oh where's Robert from <laughs> Bob Morgan.
0: Yeah but he puts he you at ease good. like exactly when you first move him you're like oh my gosh that's right. that's, oh my gosh, you know, he's got this archive Uh going and he's done so much in his life and and our stars start when he, but he, he's the type of person that really puts you at ease and makes you feel like you've known him for, for a while.
1: You know, we were all hugging each other when, when we left that first interview, so it was
0: really cool. Yeah. Yeah.
6: You know, I know because uh, I opened a small art gallery Mm -hmm. downtown right near all the pool halls and everything. When I was a kid, and uh, and sweets came to the opening, and she brought a cake. <laughs> and she brought it on uh, on this beautiful cut glass cake stand that had wow. a lid that went over it, you know, and it was one of her famous coconut cakes covered with maraschino cherries. Mm. And, uh, and we ate half the cake, then we set it in the front window where we had two mannequins standing on either side of it, you know, all dressed mm-hmm. up in ostrich feathers. Well... The gallery ended up closing mm. and Sweets had never gotten back her cake stand. And uh, we hadn't paid the next month's rent. We just went out and left stuff there. And Sweets would stroll by there every day and she would see her cake stand <laughs> in there. And every time I would see her out in public, she'd say, Where's my cake stand? I want my cake stand. I said that, mama. And I was like, Oh God. I'd run and hide from Rita. You know, I was like, Oh, she's going to get me out of that cake stand, you know. And I couldn't go back in. And so she finally went to the landlord mm-hmm. whom she knew and she said, open up that building. I don't want my cake stand. And he went and opened up the building, got her a cake stand. Next <laughs> time I saw her, she said, you don't have to hide from me anymore. I got my cake stand back. <laughs> I like. Oh.
0: I wanted to thank our listeners for listening. And, you know, I know it's a difficult time right now with everybody being at home, but we wanted to just kind of look back the podcast. Staying at home has. me the opportunity to kind of go back. It's always hard to listen to my voice, but kind of pretend like it's somebody else, not me. (laughs) But I've been listening, going back and, and just reminiscing about what a good time it's been. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm. Or you can email us at eLibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's eLibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.